Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today I'm going to talk to Malcolm Lavoie on the history and interpretation of the economic division of powers between the federal and provincial governments in the Constitution Act 1867, originally known as the British North America Act. Malcolm Lavoie is Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law and a member of the Advisory Board of the Centre of Constitutional Studies at the University of Alberta. He is also a practicing member of the Alberta Bar where he consults on civil, constitutional and regulatory issues. He received his doctorate in law from Harvard University. He is the author of Trade and Commerce, Canada's Economic Constitution, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2023. Malcolm, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. As you know, this podcast is all about Canadian history, and your book is a real mixture of legal history and contemporary theorizing about constitutional law. Can you tell us how history helps in understanding the constitution of this country and its federal nature? Yeah, absolutely. So the focus of the book is on the Constitution Act 1867, formerly the British North America Act 1867, and in particular how best to interpret and understand that document. First of all, how to understand it as it was originally uh, drafted, uh, and then how we ought to be interpreting it today. And history plays a a big role in providing some of the context for that. Uh, So the book starts out with uh, a theory uh, that uh, there's an economic vision behind the Constitution Act 1867, uh, and and that vision is reflected in the text. I argue there's a commitment to secure property rights, local governance autonomy, uh, economic integration, and free internal trade. Uh, And I say the text is committed to those uh, those ideas, uh, but the text isn't read in isolation. The text is read alongside the purpose uh, and the historical context of the Constitution Act 1867. So the book draws quite a bit on history. I draw on the Confederation debates. I, I draw on some of the legal context. Uh, around the enactment of the Constitution Act 1867 in terms of what the original understanding of that document is, and and in particular, these economic commitments. And then I make an argument as to what's changed since then, uh, how our institutions have evolved. Um, And I make the case that the basic basic features of the economic vision remain relevant today. Despite drastic changes in our society and in our our economy, uh, these uh, commitments, which I say are, are grounded in uh, enduring principles of political economy, I say they remain relevant today and relevant to how we ought to be interpreting the Constitution today. Well, the vast majority of our listeners are not lawyers. So before we get too far, can you just explain to them what we mean by the constitutional division of powers and how it was actually done in the Constitution of 1867? 
Yeah, so the division of powers uh, refers to the allocation of authority between the federal parliament on the one hand and provincial legislatures on the other. On a classical understanding of, of, of federalism, that authority is understood to be exhaustive. So there's, if you can think of any matter, it'll fall under one or the other of the sort of federal heads of power or the provincial heads of power. You've got this full um, scope that's divided between uh, the federal parliament and provincial legislatures. And a big part of the book is arguing that the, 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 the particular subjects that are allocated to the provinces and the particular subjects that are allocated to the federal parliament reflect this economic vision, this ideal of how economic relations ought to be structured. When I was in the Saskatchewan government as a senior public servant, I, I was actually for a time responsible for the internal trade negotiations. As it turned out, it was one of the most frustrating experiences of my life. Could you start with the Como case, which you mentioned, which you introduced right away in Chapter 1, and what that case tells us about the economic constitution of our country? Yeah, I start with the Como case because it's a relatable set of facts. It's a set of facts that I think encapsulates uh, a lot of the issues that have to do with the economic vision of the Constitution. So the facts are relatively straightforward. There was a gentleman, uh, Gerard Como, uh, a retired steelworker who lives in New Brunswick. He drove to Quebec to stock up on beer for his own uh, personal consumption because beer is cheaper in Quebec. Uh, the uh, police, though, uh, the RCMP had an enforcement operation uh, es essentially designed to, to catch people like Mr. Como. And as soon as he drove across the bridge back into New Brunswick, they pulled him over, uh, confiscated his beer and wrote him a ticket essentially for possession of out-of-province beer. Um, Como challenged that law. It was a New Brunswick provincial statute that he was charged under. He argued that it was unconstitutional and in particular – he argued on the basis of Section 121 of the Constitution Act 1867, which says all goods, um, more or less, it says all goods are to be admitted free, is the language, uh, from one province to the next. So he says, well, this is in the Constitution, this New Brunswick statute, which uh, it, it prohibits possession of more than a very small quantity of beer not purchased from the New Brunswick Liquor Corporation. This essentially prevents people from bringing certain kinds of goods from another province, um, and it's inconsistent with Section 121. And uh, somewhat surprisingly, in light of the existing precedent, the New Brunswick Provincial Court agreed with this argument, um, held that the, uh, the law in question was inconsistent with the Constitution Act 1867. Uh, that case ended up being appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada, where uh, nine to nothing, uh, not, with a 9-0 decision, the uh, Supreme Court overturned the New Brunswick Provincial Court uh, upheld the New Brunswick statute, gave a very narrow reading to Section 121, uh, essentially a reading that gives provinces a lot of scope for regulatory measures as long as the primary purpose of that regulatory measure isn't to um, impede interprovincial trade. This case got a lot of media attention at the time, partly because the facts were so relatable. Every Canadian can understand what's going on in this case. <laughs> um, but I think also partly because it revealed some fundamental questions and issues about what kind of country we have, what, what our commitments are. 
Um, I think most Canadians uh, have an understanding that we should be, you know, engaging in relatively free economic transactions with people in other provinces, that we that we shouldn't be in, in certain kinds of silos. At least many Canadians believe that. And here you had a constitutional provision that reflected uh, essentially that ideal, that ideal of commercial relations across provincial boundaries. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, nevertheless, the, the, the provision was given a narrow reading. I argue that part of, uh, that the court got that wrong and that part of the way in which it got it wrong was a failure to appreciate this economic vision of the constitution, that the constitution isn't neutral on economic questions, that it actually has some normative commitments, normative commitments that were understood at the time of the enactment of the constitution, but that remain relevant today. And one of those commitments is a commitment to free interprovincial trade. And that ought, have in, that ought to have informed the interpretation of Section 121. If I can say a little bit more, you know, relating to your experience in, in Saskatchewan, um, you know, the, this idea that you need to have constitutional protections for interprovincial trade, this relates to an inherent problem with federalism or an inherent issue with federalism, which is that when you set up uh, different local authorities, um, the incentives of those local authorities, in our case, the provinces, are going to be to pursue the interests of people in that locality and not take into account the interests of those outside of the jurisdiction. Uh, any one provincial government is going to be tempted to favor the interests of those inside the province, especially, you know, well-connected um, uh, producers in the province at the expense of outsiders, at the expense of c consumers and producers in other provinces. And so these, th these trade barriers enacted by provinces, um, these aren't necessarily something that can be easily solved through the political process. And so when you get all the provinces and the federal government together and try to negotiate uh, a free trade agreement, which we've done a number of times, you generally have agreement on the overarching principle. Yes, we're all committed to free interprovincial trade. But then when you get down to the details, you get hundreds of pages of exceptions that different local interests have insisted upon. And that's what the Canadian Free Trade Agreement looks like now, this agreement between the provinces and the federal government. You've got great principles of, sort of general commitments to interprovincial trade. And then you literally have hundreds of pages of exceptions to those commitments uh, insisted upon by local authorities. And to me, that suggests why this is properly a constitutional issue, that you need the constitution to restrain uh, provinces from doing what would be, what would be their natural tendency, uh, namely to uh, create barriers to trade favoring in-province interests. You've already described that the economic constitution of Canada comprises four elements. First is property rights, the second is local autonomy, the third is economic integration, and the fourth is free trade. Can you explain each of these briefly using a historical perspective on the B&A Act? What did the original framers intend? And is their intention, and of course this varies depending on who you're talking about, John A. Macdonald or you're talking about someone else, the framers of the Constitution, is their intention a significant factor or should it be a significant factor when it comes to judicial interpretation? Uh, so I'll actually start with the second question on, on intent. Um, my approach in the book isn't that uh, the intent of any one individual is dispositive or something we should be looking to. The approach I adopt at the outset is we should be looking at the original meaning. What did this mean in the con what did the text of the Constitution mean in the context in which it was enacted? Um, and then I sort of say, well, there might be some evolution and, and, and uh, some changes in how we, how we approach that. 
Um, but the sort of starting point is this original understanding of the Constitution at the time it was enacted. So, no, I, I don't think that the, the views of John A. Macdonald or any one of the framers um, is necessarily determinative of what the Constitution should mean. On the contrary, in a society governed by the rule of law, it's the text of the enactment that's our, our primary source. Nevertheless, historical context is relevant to that. You can look at the Confederation debates uh, to get a sense of how this text was understood at the time by well-informed contemporaries, which uh, the framers certainly were. You can look at the historical context to get a sense of what were the problems they were seeking to solve. And of course, one of the problems they were seeking to solve uh, was the problem of uh, barriers to trade among the British North American colonies. Uh, and in particular, in the context of the end of the reciprocity agreement with the United States and the need for um, uh, other, other markets um, to access. And so you know, intent isn't dispositive. We're looking really at the original meaning of the text, but the historical context and what well-informed contemporaries like the framers had to say uh, is relevant to that. In terms of the four commitments, I'll, I'll, I'll explain them as briefly as I, as I can. I say the Constitution's committed to property rights. We don't have a clause that says, uh, like the U.S. Constitution, that property can only be taken with just compensation. But the protections for property rights we have are, are derived from the institutions uh, that we essentially inherited from the UK Constitution. There's a line in the Constitution that says we have a Constitution similar in principle to, the, to that of the United Kingdom. We have some more express provisions that sort of reinforce that, of course. Um, and one of the central narratives of British constitutional history uh, up to the 19th century was the development of constraints on the executive branch of the state to infringe the rights of the individual, rights to liberty as, as well as rights to, to property. And so you had an institutional structure where the legislature had to authorize any infringements of the property rights of, of the individual um, and that the executive didn't have inherent authority to do that. So that's, that's the, those are the kinds of protections for property rights I'm talking about, protections that are built into the separation of powers between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of the state. Um, local autonomy and subsidiarity that is essentially reflected in the jurisdictions of the, the jurisdiction of the provincial legislatures, especially the property and civil rights power, which I argue in the book was understood in very broad terms at the time of the Constitution's enactment in 1867, uh, broad enough to encompass essentially a presumptive authority for legislatures to um, uh, make enactments on, on economic matters, unless they fall into one of the exceptions um, uh, with respect to federal heads of power. Um, and so that's where we get to economic integration and free trade. And these, these are connected. Um, there's essentially two kinds of uh, integration that, that, that you see in the text, positive integration and negative integration. Positive integration refers to the positive authority of parliament to make uniform enactments for the whole country in certain types of areas where, and, and, and as I argue in the book, the federal economic jurisdiction tends to exist on matters that can't be effectively dealt with at the local level. So interjurisdictional economic relations, international trade, interprovincial trade, where you have interests in different provinces and different countries, uh, particular provinces are less likely to take account of all of the interests um, at stake. So positive integration refers to the positive authority of the federal parliament on matters that can't be effectively dealt with locally. Negative integration refers to restrictions, restrictions primarily on the province's ability 
to create barriers to trade, to otherwise interfere with exercises of federal economic jurisdiction, for instance, with respect to currency and weights and measures and, and the sort of infrastructure of exchange that I, that I refer to. Um, and so those are, the, those, are the central, those are the central commitments. You have some that have a decentralizing tendency, property rights and local autonomy, and then you have some that have a more centralizing tendency uh, with respect to economic integration and free trade. Well, thank you. Let's drill down a little bit on this and start with property rights. You make a linkage between property rights and the whole question of Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous rights that I haven't heard before. So I'd like you to explain that a little bit to us. You know, I argue that the, the Constitution has these decentralizing commitments, both property rights and, and local governance autonomy. Um, I also, you know, observe as I'm writing the book, uh, or, or, or throughout the book, that at the time of the Constitution's enactment, that was that was a time in which Indigenous interests were not um, uh, given the the. It was a time. It was kind of a low point for Crown Indigenous relations. It was a time when uh, Indigenous relations were more likely to be viewed through the lens of the need for centralized control and cultural assimilation. And so one of the questions that emerges in constitutional interpretation is how do you how do you adapt the principles reflected in the text to changing understandings and changing reality? And one of the big narratives um, in our politics and in our culture, especially since the since the latter in, since the latter half of the 20th century and, and into the 21st century, has been the growth in an understanding and an appreciation for um, the local the, the local autonomy of indigenous nations. Um, not just the provinces that were uh, contemplated in the Constitution Act 1867, but also the pre-existing indigenous mm -hmm. nations um, that were uh, essentially ignored when you're talking about the division of powers in the Constitution Act 1867. And so one of the questions we have is how do we extend and adapt this order to the justified demands um, for autonomy and self-government by indigenous nations? And I say that there are essentially... Um, well, you can you certainly can do that by by extending by analogy um, the commitment to local autonomy and subsidiarity. This idea that uh, you know the question is how do you adapt the the indigenous demands for self government with the sovereignty of the Canadian state? The division of powers between provincial legislatures and the federal parliament provides a model, not a model to be uh, reflexively copied, but nevertheless a model of what types of matters can be effectively dealt with locally and what types of matters um, are best dealt with centrally. And you see that model informing, I think, many self-government agreements and modern treaties where uh, the jurisdiction of indigenous nations, say under the, the Nishka Treaty, um, bears some resemblance to the, the jurisdiction of a provincial legislature and the types of matters that are not part of the jurisdiction recognized uh, tend to be matters that are under federal jurisdiction. Um, I argue, though, that it's not just government authority, government autonomy that's relevant to indigenous uh, self-determination. Uh, the recognition of indigenous property and land also has a role to play there. And you see that through the doctrine of Aboriginal title. Uh, you also see that through um, First Nations control of their property interests, uh, both on reserve lands and, and lands that have been um, recognized under under treaties and agreements with the crown, uh, that there are different forms of local control uh, and proprietary control can also be quite relevant to those kinds of local decisions about local natural resources. And, uh, and so, you know, there's a connection there between the importance of secure property rights as a general matter 
and the the role that property rights of indigenous nations can play uh, in indigenous self-determination. Well, now moving on to some federal powers, in particular the trade and commerce power, can you describe what you'd call the constitutional commitment to economic integration by taking us through the parliamentary debates of 1867, as you did in the book? Because I think that that really throws uh, an interesting light on your theoretical argument, I think. Sure. Yeah. So there's a you know a whole range of uh, of uh, federal economic powers. Uh, one of them uh, you know is 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 taken out and and put in the title of the book the the, the trade and commerce uh, power. And so essentially, what I argue is that when you look through the federal heads of economic power, uh, there's a kind of functional argument that explains them that that these are matters that can't be effectively dealt with at the local level in many cases because they're issues that you know transcend borders interprovincial uh, economic relations in some cases uh, say with respect to currency because you need a sort of common infrastructure of exchange across the country the trade and commerce power specifically uh, is an interesting one um, it's been understood to have two branches one is the interprovincial and international branch and that's clearly about interjurisdictional economic relations that when you're talking about trade uh, with another country or trade across provincial boundaries those are matters that are uh, best dealt with um, uh, by a central government that's more likely to be taking into account the interests of people across uh, across the country. Uh, the trade and commerce power also has a general branch, so not just interprovincial and international trade and commerce, uh, but a branch that uh, refers to economic matters that somehow transcend local, local authority, transcend local industries and markets uh, in a sort of conceptual way. And so the matters that have been recognized under that include the federal power over competition law, uh, the federal power over trademarks, most recently federal anti-spam legislation, uh, these things that conceptually are distinct from local matters um, and are best dealt with by uh, by taking a national uh, lens. And you know that, that also allows for the recognition of new matters or matters that weren't previously as significant um, through this general trade and commerce power. How does that connect, to get back to your question, how does that connect to the confederation debates? Well, when you look through the confederation debates, there's um, a commitment, uh, there's an understanding that they had a problem. There's an understanding that they had a problem pre-1867 uh, with respect to barriers to trade across uh, uh, the jurisdiction of the, of the various colonies. There's also a recognition uh, that uh, there's a lack of a common infrastructure of exchange, a lack of a common currency, and that this is also impeding trade. And part of the expectation that you see through the Confederation debates is that by creating a new federal system of government, um, that you'll be addressing those barriers to trade. And there's appeals to uh, the economic prosperity that that can uh, bring about. There's appeals to uh, the need for national unity. Uh, you can connect that in turn to the defense concerns, um, uh, this idea that if you have greater national unity, greater uh, economic capacity, uh, your defense capacity will be, will be increased. Um, and so that was it was this was one of the central themes actually of the confederation debates this idea that um, by creating this new federal system of government uh, you'll have these economic benefits through economic integration and, and trade among the new provinces so so far we've been talking about 
Section 91 relating to federal powers and Section 92 that uh, deals with the provincial heads of power. But you also talk about the significance of Section 94, the federal power to provide for uniform private law among the common law provinces. Can you describe this section? It's not one that I'm particularly familiar with. I studied constitutional law at one time, but it's not a section that I focused on it in, in a course on the division of power. So I, I'm very interested in what you have to say about Section 94. Sure, sure. So Section 94, there's a reason that you don't hear much about it. It's because this is a provision that was essentially never taken up. Um, but it, what, what it allowed for was uniform federal legislation in on the topic of property and civil rights, so in the sort of core jurisdiction of the provinces. It allowed for the federal parliament to enact uniform legislation on things like property, contracts, torts, um, some of these sort of core private law matters, as long as the provincial legislature consented. Um, and so Section 94, I think, firstly, and, and the reason that only the common law provinces were included uh, is that Quebec was understood to have a distinct system of private law um, based on a civil code that was enacted, that came into force the year before Confederation, uh, the Civil Code of, of Lower Canada of 1866. And Quebec was understood to be sort of fundamentally distinct in its private law. And so Quebec was left out of this provision. And indeed, you know, historically, uh, Quebec was a big part of the reason why you have a provincial property and civil rights power, why we can why we can look at the division of powers today and say that there's this pretty strong commitment to local autonomy on economic questions because they're just, you know, Quebec in particular insisted on this broad provincial authority over property and civil rights, the full spectrum of private law, which does include most economic uh, relations. Uh, Section 94 is interesting because it sort of is, is a potential exception. Um, it's, it, it shows that there were people at Confederation certainly who wanted a greater degree of centralization. Um, Quebec wouldn't go along with that. Um, the, uh, the, uh, you know, there was an understanding that the, the legal system was just too distinct. Um, and so what Section 94 allowed for was to have uh, just the common law provinces go along as long as they consented. But of course, after Confederation, you had provinces uh, with their own distinct identities and uh, their own distinct institutional interests uh, who you know, never, never uh, consented to anything like this. And it's unlikely, I think, that Section 94 will, will ever be uh, taken up. Um, and uh, I think that's all right, because one of the sort of fortuitous um, aspects of our constitution is that it ended up providing for a fairly broad scope of local autonomy, um, largely because of Quebec. Um, but that ended up uh, providing a model for the extension of governance into other kinds of uh, distinct societies, societies that in some cases didn't exist in their present form at the time of confederation, say Alberta, Saskatchewan. Um, but it also, as I argue in the book, provides a potential model for uh, local government for indigenous nations within a united Canada. Um, and in fact, it already has, right? So I mentioned uh, modern treaties, um, but what I haven't mentioned yet is the jurisdiction of the government of Nunavut, um, which is uh, which which mirrors essentially the jurisdiction of the provinces. Um, it was set up intended to be a, an Inuit majority territory, and the jurisdiction uh, the jurisdictional autonomy of that territory is based on the very same legal term of art 
uh, property and civil rights, along with the other provincial heads of power, as the jurisdiction of Quebec. And so we had uh, a, a system of government that was perhaps more decentralized than it otherwise would have been because of Quebec. But I think that turned out to be fortuitous because you need a degree of decentralization to effectively govern a large and, and diverse country like Canada. So what do you mean by the infrastructure of exchange, financial and other measures that are in sections 9114 to 9120 under the Constitution Act 1867? Yeah, I have a section uh, where I argue that there's a distinct argument that explains these measures. It's not They're not necessarily about interjurisdictional economic relations. What they're about is about creating a common language of exchange. So you have uh, uh, a, a series of measures that I, that I think uh, include financial and other measures that provide a, essentially a common language for exchange. And so one of the one of one aspect is a common currency, um, which didn't exist at the time of Confederation. And you see this in the Confederation debates. A common currency um, is one of the uh, one of the objectives, um, one of the important objectives um, that was understood at the time of Confederation. Um, and you have a bunch of different federal powers that essentially relate to that and uphold it. So the federal banking power. Um, the you know the power over uh, you know bills of exchange these are all connected to the financial system, and the idea is that if you if you're anticipating an integrated national economy, uh, you need a common infrastructure for people in one part of the country to engage in exchange with people in another part of the country. If you have different currencies. Um, for example, uh, that creates a barrier to trade. You have a certain degree of risk that there will be changes in the values of the currency over time. There's an informational gap in terms of you know, making sure you understand the values of things. Uh, the weights and measures power, incidentally, I think fits into <laughs> this as well. And it's, it's, it's sequential with the financial powers. Um, you know, the idea is that if you're buying something, um, you can have the same system for assessing, you know, the weight or the length or whatever of what you're buying, and that that lowers some of the informational barriers to to engaging in transactions across the country. Uh, and, and in a way, that's analogous to the um, financial powers, which create a, a common financial language for exchange. So what is your basic argument now here, uh, your conceptual argument, I mean, for the future of Canada? Yeah, yeah. So I argue that, you know, these commitments are essentially grounded in enduring principles of political economy and that they do remain relevant today. The, you know, the importance of property rights are maybe understood on different terms, but property rights are still understood to be important to how our economy and our society are, are structured. Local autonomy has taken on, uh, similarly, in some ways, greater significance when you think about the demands of indigenous nations, you think about provinces that have come along since Confederation, along with, of course, uh, Quebec and the, um, and the Maritimes. Um, and similarly, the commitment to free interprovincial trade, I think you saw with the Como case that those ideas continue to resonate and uh, continue to resonate across the political spectrum. And so I argue that there's been a, a sense in which courts and policymakers have begun to lose touch with this economic vision. Uh, there's been a move towards a more flexible conception of federalism that allows for more federal uh, interference in areas of provincial jurisdiction uh, and similarly uh, provides provinces with, I think, too much scope to create barriers to trade and, and to enact laws in areas of federal jurisdiction. Um, and I think part of that just comes from a lack of appreciation for, say, how the exclusivity of the division of powers, the exclusive nature of federal versus provincial powers, uh, how that upholds uh, the economic vision of the Constitution. 
Um, and so what I'd like to see uh, is a renewed appreciation for some of these ideas, a renewed appreciation for the importance of uh, secure property rights. And you know, there's a sense in which the case law might be developing in that direction already, um, but also with respect to the division of powers, that it actually matters what particular heads of power are provincial and which powers are federal. And it does matter that they're exclusive because that, keep, that prevents provinces from enacting barriers to trade in areas of federal jurisdiction. And at the same time, it provides the proper scope for the federal government um, to provide for economic integration and an integrated national economy with free trade across provincial boundaries. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. My guest today was Malcolm Lavoie. His book, Trade and Commerce, Canada's Economic Constitution, was published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, and we want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. This particular podcast on Canadian political history was sponsored by Don Bourgeois and Susan Campbell of Kitchener, Ontario. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on February 28, 2023. This podcast is supported by our producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press Journal team.